Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, this morning we are starting a new sermon series that we're called Winning, Seven Messages on Overcoming. And part of why we're calling it Winning is because it is so much better to win than to lose, isn't it? I mean, if we're really honest about it. I mean, I know some people say things like, well, it's not all about winning. It's about the friends that you make along the way. And it's not all about winning. It's about the journey. And it's about the lessons that you receive for life. And it's not all about winning. It's about improving. And it's about having fun. And and people, I think, say these things because we have to deal with the fact that we don't always win. That Perhaps it's kind of like tennis superstar Martina Navratilova is credited with saying, she said, whoever said it's not whether you win or lose that counts, probably lost. (laughs) And this series is going to take more of a Vince Lombardi approach to winning. He's credited with saying winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, right? But the question that we should be asking ourselves heading into this series is winning at what? What is it that we are seeking to win at? And to answer that question, we're actually going to be going through a part of the book of Revelation known as the seven letters to the seven churches. And Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It is often confusing, it's often challenging, but it's also often incredible and very encouraging and even is intended to speak into our lives today, not just about some future point in time. The book's called Revelation because in it Jesus reveals himself as the resurrected Lord and reveals a message or a series of messages to a guy named John. And John may have been the Apostle John who lived with Jesus through the years of his ministry and was the one who wrote the book of John and identified himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It may also be another John, we're not exactly sure, but the John who wrote this has been exiled on the island of Patmos, and in that remote place, Jesus reveals himself in these spectacular series of visions, because he has a message, specifically a message, to the seven churches in what was known as Asia Minor, which is mostly modern-day Turkey. And Jesus addresses the very specific issues going on in those churches, but also addresses the situation those those churches find themselves in. Jesus probably gave this revelation in the 90s AD. It was a time of persecution for the Christians, persecution from Jewish authorities and from Roman authorities. Jewish authorities because they continued to proclaim the risen Jesus as the true Messiah of Israel. And from the Roman authorities because they refused to acknowledge the whole pantheon of Roman gods and particularly the emperor, the Caesar, as Lord. And under that persecution, the Christians could simply be executed because of their faith. 
Or they could, they could face other social ramifications, maybe economic repercussions because nobody would do business with them because they had been blackballed. But it wasn't just a time of persecution, it was also a time of affluence, of relative peace and comfort and security in the empire which gave lots of space to seek pleasure and happiness. And so the temptation for the churches was under persecution to deny their faith in Jesus so that they didn't have to live without the constant struggle day in and day out and the constant fear. That was also a temptation to simply go along to get along, to even adopt these Roman lifestyles to perhaps compromise their morals and their integrity and just become like the rest of society. And so Jesus is addressing these temptations and the particular way that these play out in these seven churches. And along the way, Jesus gives some words of affirmation. He gives some words of rebuke. He gives some words of comfort. He gives some warning and and really some correction. And for some of the churches, he gives all the above. And really, Jesus is talking about what matters most. Because at the end of each of these messages to the churches, he makes an incredible promise. He says, to those who overcome, to those who win, he gives these incredible series of promises and also a startling warning for those who lose. And Jesus is talking about winning at life and really ultimately at life eternal. Not just life here and now. He's talking about the matters of faith. He's talking about winning in the greatest sense, the biggest picture. And so the question that lingers over every one of the messages to the churches is, will they win? Will they overcome the temptation, the pressure to conform or deny their faith? Will they boldly live for Christ? Will they win? And implicitly, the question comes to us. Will we win? Will we overcome? Because winning isn't everything In this case, it really is the only thing. And so we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 2. You can follow along if you'd like on the screens as we see the first message to the church in Ephesus and for us today. Hear these words from Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious day that you have given, this chance to gather in your presence with a confidence that you're here. We invite your spirit to open our ears that we could hear the message that you have for the churches. 
the message you have for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, have you ever heard of a compliment sandwich? You know what I'm talking about? A compliment sandwich works like this, that you give a compliment at the beginning, and you give a compliment at the end, but in between the two, you give that critical feedback, that criticism, that correction, that rebuke. You know, and so, for example, it could kind of work like this. If you're coaching a baseball team, you might say something like this. Hey, great job getting in front of and stopping that ball. Your throw was to the completely wrong base. But man, what a strong throw. Right? It's this idea that it makes the, the criticism more palatable when you sandwich it between two compliments. And this is exactly what Jesus has done with this church with the church in Ephesus. He starts with the good things, he finishes with something else that he can affirm, and then in between is this little bit of critical feedback. And so let's start with the good stuff, because that's what he did. Right? He starts by saying, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance and your toil. I know that you're not afraid to put your money where your mouth is, to put your body where your mouth is. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know your faith isn't just lip service. It's not just some set of beliefs that you've signed off on and said, yep, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in these things, act on the rest of your life. No, your faith affects every day. It sets your priorities, it sets your direction, and you're doing so much. Jesus is affirming that this is an active church. That they're not afraid to get their hands dirty. They're not afraid to serve. They're not afraid to work hard to live out the implications of their faith. And Jesus is telling them so clearly, I see it. I see your hard work. I know what you've been doing. And he goes on. He says, I also know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and false apostles. And this would have been a problem in this day in Ephesus. See, Ephesus was actually a pretty wicked place. One of Ephesus' own philosophers, Heraclitus, was known as the weeping philosopher. And part of that was because of his general melancholy and his philosophy that all that really was constant was change. But he would also weep over the folly of mankind. And when asked about his own city, he, he said, how can you not weep when you live in Ephesus because of all of its immorality? This was his own assessment of his own city, his own people. And in this city, which was this major metropolis, it was also a major religious center. It had the temple to the goddess Artemis, at least that was the Greek name, or the goddess Diana, that was her Roman name. And, and this temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, it was enormous and it was magnificent. But also within it and within the practices of the temple was this enormous amount of temple prostitution. And add to that, this temple was also a place of asylum for criminals. So there was this law that if criminals could get within a certain distance of this temple, it was a safe place. They wouldn't be held accountable. They wouldn't be prosecuted. And so you can imagine all the sorts of people that were flowing into Ephesus all the time trying to get close enough to the temple, the kind of things that they had been doing in their lives, they probably, the kind of things they would continue to keep doing. You can imagine these criminals seeking asylum. This was the city of Ephesus. 
And so Jesus is speaking to that church in that city, affirming, hey, you can't tolerate wicked people. You can't tolerate their behavior, these people who are moving into town and maybe they're taking advantage of people in the church or maybe they're taking advantage of the people of the city, the residents of Ephesus. Maybe they're roughing them up, pushing them around, trying to get ahead. And maybe they were even trying to infiltrate the church. Could have been pretending to be the poor that the church had been so good at serving. And that they were just leeching off of the generosity of the church and yet they refused to accept it. Furthermore, some people were moving into Ephesus claiming to be apostles. In other words, they were claiming to come to speak and teach in Jesus' name. That they had some newfound truth that others hadn't had. And Jesus is affirming them again, saying, hey, you're not being swayed by their strange teaching. You know, when you hear something and, and you test it and it doesn't smell quite right, you're not just going along with the new thing. You're standing against it. When it doesn't line up to what you know to be true, you reject it. You're protecting the truth of the faith from these false teachers. I see it. Keep it up. Stand strong. He keeps going. I mean, he has so much to affirm in this church, and you haven't grown weary. I know it's gotten hard. I know you've been persecuted, but you have persevered. You've stayed the course. Because, let's get honest, it's hard to stay faithful when everyone else around you seems to be turning away. It's hard to be the only one standing up against the pressure and the flow of things. It's hard to be the one, the only one who it seems like is trying to have any integrity. The only one who's willing to stand up for that person who's being treated terribly by the whole group. It's hard to be the one who refuses to adopt the practices that seem so unethical. It's hard to be the one who shuts down the conversation because it's turned so easily toward gossiping about somebody else. It's hard. It's hard to be the only one standing against the tide of a culture that says, it's okay, anything goes. And this church was standing firm against the immorality of Ephesus. And Jesus says to them, I see how you've persevered. I see it. So he has all this great stuff to say on the front, and he finishes with another compliment, another affirmation. When he says at the end, he says, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we're not exactly sure what those practices were, kind of the history and the exact things that the Nicolaitans had been doing is lost to us in history, but it's pretty clear that it must not have been good. For Jesus to say, I hate them also, I mean, that, that says something, doesn't it? Because Jesus doesn't say he hates a whole lot of things. And let's be clear, he hates the practices of these people, not these people. And he's saying, I know that you hate their practices too. And so you're with me in this. See, Jesus has so much to affirm about this church. This is the church that maybe if you looked at the outside, you might think, man, this church has it going on. This church is working hard. They're meeting needs. They're standing for the truth. They're standing alongside Jesus. They're standing up against the, the rot and the decay of society. Oh, but Jesus has the middle of the sandwich still. And if you've ever received a compliment sandwich, you know that the whole purpose of the sandwich is the middle part, right? I mean, it's kind of like an Oreo. that It's really, it's all about the middle. And it was all about the middle for Jesus too. As much as he affirms all of this, he says this 
right in the middle, he says, yet I hold this against you. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And, and if you've been in a loving relationship, you know what he's getting at. You know, I remember the, the early days uh, of loving my, my now wife, Abby. I remember the zeal and the giddiness. I remember the joy and the delight, the desire to spend all of our waking moments with the other person. I know, I remember, and you've, if you've been in this kind of a relationship, you remember the desire just to do everything you possibly could to make their life better, to make it beautiful, good, and as perfect as you possibly could. Prioritizing them above anything and everything else. That their delight was your delight. That all you wanted to do was talk until the wee hours of the morning just to be with them. So you know what it's like. That first, that love you had at first. To do whatever it takes to express that care for the other. And Jesus is saying, this is what it was like for you, Ephesus. This, was, this is what it was like in the beginning. You were, you were all in. It, you did everything you possibly could to honor me, to spend time with me, to be spent for me. Your life, on my behalf, you wanted to know me, to know my love and respond to that love in every way you possibly could. You just wanted to be all in with me and for me and then something happened. Something happened and you've forsaken that love. You've walked away. You've turned your back on me. And in, in this, I think Jesus is giving us an incredible warning about what life is really all about. See, I think we, we can get it really twisted. We can start to think that, you know what, I'm winning at life if I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing. If I'm following all the rules. If I'm not sinning, or at least not too badly, right? We can start to think we're winning at life if, if I'm a good person, or at least I'm better than those people, or we can start to convince ourselves, well, I'm serving. I'm, look at all the people I'm helping, going to church. Look at how much I'm generously giving. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm winning at life. I think we can be just like this church who were, they were doing the things. Jesus was affirming, you're doing it. I think Jesus was asking them and maybe asking us even this morning, why? Why are you bothering? Is it, is it your love for me? I'm not so sure. You know, and, and we can imagine situations where it's not. You can imagine, you can imagine a marriage where from the outside, everything about the marriage looks, looks wonderful. You know, they're, the two people, they're, they're doing everything that you would expect a loving couple to do. One's cooking and the other's cleaning. They've taken turns, taking out the trash. They're cleaning the toothpaste out of the sink, putting the toilet seat down. They're going on dates. They're prioritizing vacations. They're doing the stuff. And yet, there may not be any love there. That you've probably known couples that have become more like roommates than spouses that really, they keep doing the things, but it's really just so that it doesn't upset the apple cart just because they don't want to deal with the repercussions of not doing it that way. It's no longer the choice that was so easy early in the relationship that it was the delight simply to serve and care and love the other. It was the delight to see their delight. It was joy in their joy. Jesus is saying to the church, you're doing all the things, but do you really love me? 
oh, you, you've forsaken me. You're doing all the things, but maybe you're doing it out of habit, out of obligation, out of tradition. You're doing the good things because it's the good and right thing to do. Or maybe you're doing it because when you look in the mirror, it's a lot easier to look in the mirror when you've been doing the right things than when you haven't been. Because you can feel better about yourself. And Jesus, I think, is saying to the church and is saying to us, you might as well stop. Might as well stop doing the good things. Because Jesus said, yeah, you're doing all of this good, but here's the thing. If you don't repent, if you don't turn back to me, if you don't turn back to your love for me, then here's the warning he gave. I'm going to remove the lampstand from its place. And that's a pretty intense warning. See, in this message, Jesus has identified himself as the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. If you were with us last week, Pastor Teresa helped us unpack that. That's imagery from the first chapter of this book where Jesus is the one who holds the messages, the messengers to the churches, those are the seven stars, and he is present walking among the lampstands. He's present with us, but he's also right with us, and you know what I'm talking about, because that means he's always watching. Did your parents ever say that? I'm always watching. You left the house, and you're like looking over your shoulder because you believed him. Well, Jesus is always there. He's always with us. He's He's walking among the churches, and he's saying to this church, all the good things you're doing don't matter because you've forsaken your love for me. Turn back to me, or I'll take your lampstand away. You'll no longer shine as a light. You'll no longer be the church shining in this place. And I was reading one commentator uh, who was talking about this passage this week and they had been to Ephesus and they, they were talking about one of the things that stood out to them, struck them so profoundly in Ephesus today, this is recent times, was that there is no church in Ephesus. There's no active Christian, visible Christian presence in Ephesus today. Perhaps they kept doing the things but didn't turn back to the one for whom they do them didn't turn back. It was not about Jesus. Perhaps it was still about themselves. See, Jesus doesn't want your good deeds. He didn't need them. Jesus doesn't want your good behaviors, at least not alone. He wants you. And he wants you to want him. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, as we heard from Deuteronomy earlier. And to receive from him the love he has for you. He's warning us to turn back. He's warning this church, repent. Turn back. Remember how far you have fallen. Remember how far you have come. See, we just came out of this, this Lenten season where we were part of the Red Letter Challenge. And one of the things that was great about the Red Letter Challenge is a recognition that faith without works is dead. In other words, we can't just believe stuff and have it not actually impact our life, not actually live that out, not actually put it into practice if we consider ourselves real followers of Jesus. And so that was a beautiful thing. But one of the warnings of this passage that we're reading today is, hey, don't get comfortable on your own effort and on your own good works. That's not what makes you loved and accepted before God. It's not the reason to feel good about yourself and better than other people. It's a reminder to seek the one whom loves us to return to our first love. 
And to do that, Jesus says, remember, remember how far you've fallen. And I think that could mean two things for us. It could remember, if, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not walking in faith and obedience, then maybe it's, it's a reflection to remember how far you have fallen from the life that God intended for you. Or maybe if you have, have been walking with Jesus, it's to remember how far you had fallen way back then. Or maybe it's to remember how far you've fallen since you actually came to faith. If we think about that time, maybe before you knew Jesus, you know, I think if I take an honest inventory of my life about that time, that period, I realized how self-absorbed I was, how incredibly self-seeking. Everything was really about me trying to seek, you know, to, to make a way, be happy on my own terms. And so I look at the patterns of behavior in my life and, the, and think about the shame and regret. You have any of those? And I had fallen so far from the life that God meant me for. And I needed Jesus to meet me in the bottom. I needed him to meet me at, at, at that place in the midst of my shame and my regret. I needed him to lift me up because I realized, when I look back, I realized I had made such a mess of my life. And I needed Jesus to clean it up because I couldn't seem to clean it up myself. And we remember how far we've fallen. But then I also think about since coming to faith in Jesus, realizing that he was the source of forgiveness, he was the source of my hope, there's been lots of times in my life and I, I start taking that same inventory and I go and I look and I say, man, I have been more obedient since then. I have been more faithful. I have done more good things. I have served and cared about other people more since coming to that faith. And yet when, when I look at the why, is it because I love Jesus? Or is it often, I think as I've, honestly looked at myself, it's often because I still love myself more than him. Because I want to care for myself. I want to, I want to do the right thing so that I can prove that I'm worthy of having a life that's blessed. I can prove that I'm good enough to, to deserve the love that God would give. I'm good enough whether to get into heaven someday or good enough just to have God answer my prayers or listen to me when I'm talking to him or to bless and take care of my family, whatever it is. I think if I'm honest about what's underneath there sometimes, it's really I'm building my life on my own effort. And in that, I've fallen away from the place of true, of total trust, of faith, that Jesus is my only source of hope, the only means for forgiveness, the only way that God has, has accepted me and loved me is not because I've done it, but because Jesus gave his life to the point of death on a cross for me and for you, that that was what secured God's love for us. And this passage is, a, is an invitation to remember that. Remember how far you have fallen that you, you and I both, we needed Jesus to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to offer his life in our place so that we can receive that love that he has for us, taking the focus off the things that we would do, but to the heart of why we would do them, responding to the love that has been given to you through Jesus. And so Jesus gives this, this compliment sandwich, this incredible warning, this calling to reflect on our lives. Am I doing, why, why do we do what we do? Is it to love Jesus or to love ourselves? It's to remember, it's to repent and turn back. And then he makes this incredible promise, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, to the one who wins, what are we conquering? 
What are we winning over in this message? We're overcoming the temptation to try to prove to God that we are worthy. We're overcoming the temptation to try to live our lives in such a way that we get to say to God, hey, look, look at all the good stuff I've done. Look at my toil. Look at my perseverance. Look at how I've stood for the truth. Look at how I haven't given in to the decay of culture. Look, God, aren't I worthy? It's to give up on that pursuit to prove ourselves worthy and lovable. Instead, it's to move and repent and turn back to the one who we first loved and who first loved us as the reason and the means by which we are good enough. And if we overcome that temptation, Jesus says, then, then I will grant you the opportunity to eat of the tree of life. It's the tree that was in the Garden of Eden, the tree that before Adam and Eve sinned, they were allowed to eat from constantly. It was the tree that gave their, their bodies and their souls life and vitality. It was the tree that could extend their life into eternity. And so at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, the tree is coming back. To those who win over this temptation, you can eat from that tree and receive the abundance of life that is life eternal in the presence of God, in the paradise of God. I don't know about you, but when I think about paradise, what comes to mind? When I think about paradise, I often think of putting my feet up on the beach with a palm tree, maybe a slight breeze blowing. Maybe it's enjoyment of a hike through the mountains. That's paradise. Often, I start thinking about, hey, it's rest. Isn't paradise rest from our toil? Rest from our hard work. This is a promise that there is rest for you from that hard work of trying to just through your own effort prove that you are lovable. And Jesus is saying, stop. You don't need to do that. I've already shown you how loved you are because Jesus' victory came by offering his life He overcame all of the enemies of life through his death and his resurrection and he has given that victory to you to be received. So this morning, the invitation is to return to your first love. Take an inventory of your life. Why do you do what you do? Is it because you love Jesus? Is it because you realize how much he loves you? Consider how far you've fallen and how great the love of God is for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your word that speaks into the circumstances of our lives and we see in ourselves this temptation and this pull. We see it to to prove that we are worthy and lovable, to, to try to earn from you respect, worth, value, to try to demonstrate to ourselves, to others, that we are We're the good ones. Lord God, may we as a church, individually and as the corporate church, may we not get caught up in the good deeds. Yes, Lord, we want to be obedient. Yes, we want to do, we want to serve and love you well. But Lord God, may it be a reflection of our our passionate love for you as we respond to your profound love for us. God, may we see, may you give us a greater vision and understanding of how far we have fallen how far we had fallen before we knew you, perhaps how far we have fallen since knowing you, and may we turn back, moved by your love for us that would seek us and meet us in the pit of despair, that would meet us at the bottom 
would lift us up into your loving presence, Lord, that we could receive life eternal, rest from our toil. It's in Jesus' name that we trust and we pray. Amen. Thank you.